0: Happy birthday, Richard Gere. (gasps) No way. Yeah, August 31st, Richard Gere's birthday. I just found that out this morning, and we had already planned to do this like a couple days ago. What What better way to
1: celebrate? What better way to celebrate? What better way to celebrate? better way to celebrate than uh
0: than ter- talking about his shitty cornet solos <laughs> this fucking movie <laughs> i like the beginning in the credits oh, yeah. cornet solos performed by richard gear like they had it was it got like fourth like billing top billing yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean
1: i seeing this both times though i was impressed by that like it had the the desired effect where i was like Richard Gere plays the cornet.
0: Well, it's also like they always talk about when actors in musicals, like, perform, their like, sing their own songs. They right. have to, like, it's like a publicity thing to, like, make a big deal about it.
1: Yeah. The m- biggest audience Richard Gere has ever had for his cornet playing.
0: Yeah. I wonder if, like, what, if he learned how to do it for the movie or if he already knew how to play, like, trumpet or cornet. He must have. I I, mean, I, I, I can't imagine you would go through all that. Tr- oh, I don't know. Some actors do, but really? it seems like... Apparently, he hated doing this movie, too. So, oh, really? Yeah, he was, like, not convinced that it was going to help him at all. Like, he was coming off the... When when he agreed to it, he was coming off the back of American Gigolo. Right. So, he, he wasn't yet, like, a huge box office draw. So, he agreed to it, and then it took, like, two years for it to come out. Yeah. And by then, he was, like... He thought he was above it already.
1: Did American Gigolo do good business?
0: I don't think it did great business, but it was definitely um, a well-liked, critically... Like yeah. people, people liked it. I don't yeah. think it was like a box office smash or anything, but
1: that's a movie too, where he is perfectly cast.
0: That movie is maybe the only Richard gear performance that doesn't grate me in some way.
1: Yeah. Where it's not, I mean, he's, where it's, it doesn't feel like, oh, it's Richard Gere in a movie. Right. It's, yeah. he, he feels like the character.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: Uh, we've talked before about our love for American Gigolo.
0: Every time I drive to the desert, yeah I imagine...
1: Going to Palm Go, Springs. Going to
0: Palm Springs to <laughs> seduce rich women yeah. with, a, with a Marauder soundtrack.
1: Yeah. It's, <laughs> Marauder sounds great in the desert, by the way.
0: He really does. <laughs> it might be the only appropriate place for Marauder. So, so uh, are we scholars yet? I don't know, we We have a bunch of books (laughs) I actually went to the library and checked out not one, but two books uh, for Coppola in general and Cotton Club specifically
1: It's amazing, we have five books on the table It's
0: great, man um, this, is, this is good. So this y- is,
1: you have Easy Riders Raging Bulls and you have yes. a book called Fiasco?
0: Yeah, it's this crazy book. It's not particularly well written, but it is highly informative. Okay. It's called Fiasco, A History of Hollywood's Iconic Flops by nice. James Robert Parrish.
1: What else is in there?
0: Um, some really good stuff, actually. Um, around the same time, it covers Popeye. Popeye. Which is also covered in Raging Bull, or yeah. Easy Rider's Raging Bulls. There's some overlap in the later chapters of Fiasco mm-hmm. with uh, R- uh, Easy Rider's Raging Bulls. Um, there is, uh, yeah, so there's Popeye. Um, Another
1: really underappreciated movie.
0: Yeah. Uh, there's the original uh, Liz Taylor Cleopatra. Uh-huh. Which cost them like $50 million to make. At, and like... like
1: of. Like, 60s money. Yes,
0: which it just kept ballooning. Like, they they switched locations from England to Italy, (laughs) or from the studio in America to England to Italy. They had to rebuild the sets every time. Wow. Um, And, like, Liz Taylor originally uh, asked for a million dollars because she didn't want to do it, so she thought that they would just turn her down, but then they agreed, and then... (laughs) slowly she upped it to like seven million by the end or something she ended up getting it was like really out of control how long did it take to shoot that like three years it was just stupid and then like richard burton and liz taylor would like they had were having an affair and then they would just leave in the middle of like the shooting week to like go on vacation and no one could find them and they were like boating in like malta or something oh my god (laughs) Yeah, it was like a disaster apparently. Um there is also Battlefield Earth is covered in fiasco as oh, well. Good. Um I haven't gotten to that chapter yet. I actually I I took it out for the Cotton Club and now right. I'm just reading every chapter cuz yeah. it's so interesting to read about the failures of like you know cuz they you, they pump they pump millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars into these things.
1: And there are so many places for the budgets to balloon, like so many areas Involved in I, in just getting a day's worth of film, you know, it's like it, it's a crazy industry. So, uh, so we're scholars.
0: Yeah, so we're scholars now because we because we've we've we're, we now have books on the subject.
1: Okay, so do you want to? I, I think the e- the most interesting thing about the Cotton Club is the story behind it. Yeah. Easily, um, so I, I kind of wrote a timeline of uh, of how this movie came into being uh do you want to so let's let's kind of piece it together um cuz i'm sure you have stuff to add that i i don't know it, it, it's uh it was the brainchild of robert evans um probably i i think i guess the producer from the 70s and 60s with the most name recognition i would say yeah um he he wrote the book the kid stays in the picture about his life which is fantastic
0: I've not read that yet but I think that might be the next. It's
1: awesome. The There's a really good documentary out. uh of the same name where it's basically just Based you know, on the book? It's basically or... him reading from the book with like pictures. Oh cool. So, yeah. Um you can just watch that if you feel like it. But uh he produced Chinatown and Marathon Man and Urban Cowboy and um just a, a bunch of
0: the um which is how he knew Coppola the the f- the two the first two Godfathers he yes. also produced.
1: Yes, and they didn't like each other, but, um, Coppola, you know, that Coppola was vindicated in all of the crazy decisions he made during The Godfather, like, a million times over, which is how he was able to do Apocalypse Now. He
0: said that The Godfather's ruined his career. Really? Yeah, because he, essentially, he said they, like, boxed him in, um... Which is interesting to me because they're the only reason that he was able to basically for the rest of his career do
1: whatever the fuck he wanted. Do
0: whatever the fuck he wanted, even though almost every single movie uh, post The Godfather's, he lost money on. Yeah, it. like he was like there were there were not any any movies he made after that really that were successful.
1: It, it does kind of seem like the the Orson Welles thing of like you peek right out of the gate, and then everything you do afterwards is going to be compared to to what you, the first thing you did pretty much. Um,
0: but that first thing is the only thing that made you, that gave you the ability to do the rest, to basically take part in the rest of your career. Yeah.
1: You can't disown it. And, and a lot of what makes the Godfather movies great is directly from Coppola. It's what he, he added to it. So yeah, you have Robert Evans and he wants, he wants a big hit and the same agent who sold him the Godfather uh, sells him the cotton club and it seems like a slam dunk to him. Um,
0: he calls it, uh, the Godfather with music <laughs> was, was his, was part of his pitch.
1: <laughs> That's probably the whole pitch, <laughs> but, um, immediately, um,
0: immediately it, it's apparent that it's not at all.
1: Yeah. Though. Well, first it's a quote black movie. So the studios aren't biting, um, That's
0: crazy to me. I would think by the early 80s, especially with the success of like Richard Pryor and like Eddie Murphy that they would have like that wouldn't have been a stigma anymore.
1: Yeah, but I mean it's it still is. You know what I mean? Like it seems like that it kind of in the 70s black cinema became a thing and and a bunch of black artists pushed through and like in front of the camera and behind the camera, but even now um you know, movies about black people and black experiences and stuff are are so much in the minority still. But you would think that someone with the clout of Robert Evans basically trying to sell The Godfather with music, you'd think that it would get a little traction uh, despite all the inherent racism in Hollywood, but I guess not. So, um, and he meets an actress named Melissa Prophet, who has a promise from an Arab arms dealer named Adnan Khashoggi to finance a film for her. He's just promised her that he's going to finance whatever she
0: wants. Which already getting like right out of the gate, getting the first couple million funding for your movie from an Arab arms dealer seems to me to be like some kind of bad omen of how the rest of this whole process panned out. Yeah. it's
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's not a promising start. Um, So um, Robert Evans calls Mario Puzo, the writer of the Godfather novel...
0: Which I didn't realize when I started watching this that he had any hand in it. Yeah, And then I I found out later after researching that actually most of his contributions were wiped by the final cut.
1: Yeah, well, there's so many... um, Yeah, there's so many people who got involved in this project only to be let go or to leave or ask for too much money. And um, yeah, but Puzo wrote a script, but Khashoggi, the arms dealer, hated the script, so backed out and pulled his money out. Um, But now the studios felt like it was a more promising thing that Puzo was involved. So they start to become interested. Um, But Robert Evans so butthurt that they didn't bite in the first place now says fuck you i'm financing this movie and directing it myself i don't know if he would directed a film before this. never yeah.
0: he had never directed a film before despite <laughs> producing many smash successes in the 70s oh uh he decided i guess you know hubris i mean yeah. this is the the best always fall because they get too big for their britches so well
1: yeah there's no shortage of hubris in the Cotton Club project. Um, so Robert Evans approaches Sylvester Stallone, hot off of Rocky, to, uh, to.
0: I forgot about that, which, like, who the hell, like, who thought that was it, like, that, like, any <laughs> idea that would work? Can Sylvester
1: Stallone play the cornet? No. <laughs> but, um, and approaches Richard Pryor um, for the the two two main male roles but they both ask for four million dollars each so robert evans says no um but with, with the press from that um they he pitches the movie at con and uh, overseas distributors get interested enough to say that they'll give him eight million dollars
0: so he sold the movie at Con before he, had a star. Before he even had a star. Or even yeah. a, was the script even done yet?
1: Uh, I think, a, a, yeah, Puzo, okay. Puzo.
0: Had written a couple drafts already. Yeah,
1: there was something. So um, now he's got $8 million promised, but no star. So these casino magnates from Las Vegas, the Dumani brothers, and an insurance magnate called Victor Saye, uh, become the backers and Robert Evans promises them that he can do this film for $20 million, Um, which maybe he could have, but he hired Francis Ford Coppola, who is a director who Robert Evans should have known is notorious for... not. I mean, Francis Ford Coppola had just bankrupted himself because he for shot for the second time. Yeah, cuz he shot one for the heart and couldn't he couldn't follow his own rules, couldn't make it a small uh movie that came in under budget. So like he's that that's what he does. His studio, his Zoetrope Studios is up for sale. He have his creditors have a lien on his mansion. Like he Coppola is not in a place to say no, but but also Robert Evans, I guess at this point he's, I should say he's hiring him to write a script. So, right. Um,
0: That's actually an important distinction yeah. is that he only originally asked Coppola. And for the first couple months, even they were still going forward with Coppola, uh, writing, writing a couple drafts and acting in a mainly, uh, like consulting yeah. capacity.
1: Coppola is known for taking a Puzo script and making it better. So, okay. He's going to make the Godfather with music.
0: But see, if anyone pitched me with that byline, I would, that would make me not want to do it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Especially if Coppola is uh, like hung up about getting pigeonholed from the godfather, but okay, whatever. He needs money. Um, So Robert Evans
0: attaches Richard Gere, who is, yeah, it's a big, becoming a big star. First he tried to, first he asked Pacino. Oh, really? After he asked Stallone, he asked Pacino. And Pacino was like, hell no. Why would I want to redo The Godfather with music? <laughs> so, yeah. So, then, so then, then they get gear on board. I don't
1: know who the, the character was supposed to be in, like, the original, you know, in whatever original vision, if there was such a thing for this. But I just feel like Richard Gere is, is miscast, like, colossally miscast in this role. But he attaches Richard Gear, But Richard Gear hates Mario Puzo's script.
0: <laughs> See this is what's interesting to me is like where I mean and I know this happens all the time because stars have egos. But you'd think that if someone's getting cast in a movie they would they would they would take the movie because they liked what the movie was. Yeah. Not because they wanted to make it something else. Right. Yeah,
1: it's like he's like, yeah, I'll do it for a bunch of money and if you completely throw out everything but the loose concept. So Coppola uh, uh, is writing the script and the Dumani's hate the one that he that Coppola finally turns in so, and suspend their funding so, <laughs> um, so suddenly the money has dropped out but Robert Evans is already spending $140,000 a week in pre-production building a recreation of the Cotton Club in New York City like that like stresses me out just thinking about it
0: Well, and also the fact that Evans initially turned down Paramount wanted to do it, right? and he turned them down because they had a lot of concessions, Uh. or they, they had a lot of changes they wanted to make, and Evans didn't want to make any of those concessions. So he said, well, look, I'm a super successful producer. My name has clout, especially if I'm going to be the director. I want this to succeed or fail on only my terms. So I'm rich enough. And I have enough experience that I think I could fund this on my own. Essentially, he was trying to operate as a one-man studio. Right, but try, and trying to do it like out
1: of the gate again with like to make something grand and huge, and that is is going to make a bunch of money. Which, yeah,
0: hubris. Uh, five five hundred thousand dollars for Coppola's uh, screenwriting good fee.
1: Lord, half a million. This is where things go from like. Star-crossed to just bizarre
0: like I feel like everyone at this point was Purposely shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah like with like the decisions they were making
1: right but and but desperation must have been so high now if you've got a Recreation of the cotton club built
0: a million dollars to build that set by the way (laughs) Just to just to rebuild and re-rebuild the cotton club set cost a million dollars Wait, they had to build it twice they, yeah, like some of it didn't work. They had to rebuild uh-huh. parts of it, then they expanded it. Uh,
1: um, okay, so Robert Evans meets a woman named Elaine Jacobs, who's a wealthy widow, and introduces him to a man named Roy Radin, a vaudeville producer. And Radin comes up with a scheme to get $35 million in funding from the Puerto Rican government. Um, and Evans, apparently at this point, is so desperate that he's like cool, go for it, um, except...
0: He also had ties to uh, the Atlantic City mob.
1: Oh, yeah, well, so then it, it makes sense that a week, weeks later, his body is found, dumped in a canyon, shot 13 times in the head with a stick of dynamite in his mouth. The police interrogate Robert Evans for four hours, thinking that he has a, a part in, in the murder.
0: To, to collect the money or because he was, or uh, to, to collect the insurance money for the, the shoot, or, or why did they think that he was a. Uh, I,
1: I think he's just a person of interest. Okay. Because um, all I know is Robert Evans got hauled into the, uh, to the police station and uh, had to defend himself for why he was, why he was supposed, supposedly getting millions of dollars from this man who was just found, killed, gangland style. Um, all right, so to, to finish up what I know about this story, uh, I'm going to read from the unauthorized biography of Nicolas Cage, the man behind Captain Corelli, <laughs> which is just a font of information. It's this, <laughs> the best purchase I've made in, in connection to this uh, podcast. The drama surrounding blah, 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 blah. In 1990, three men and women were charged with the murder of Roy Radin. A woman was... the uh, The woman who had introduced herself to Robert Evans as Elaine Jacob, was actually named Karen Greenberger. A self-confessed cocaine dealer, she denied allegations that she set up the murder because Radin was trying to cut her out of an agreed $50,000 finder fee for linking him up with Evans. She was alleged to have hired the three men, um, William Mens- Menser, one of her lovers, Alex Marty and Robert Lowe, all former bodyguards of Larry Flint, publisher of the porn magazine Hustler, to do the killing. Um, These were men who were seen with her in the limousine that uh, picked Roy Radina up the last time he was seen alive and presumably then dumped him into uh, the canyon. Uh, Sheriff's investigators had all but given up the case when they were connected by Flint's brother-in-law, William Ryder, who said Menser and Marty had told him about the killings and that he had secretly recorded a conversation with Lowe in which he claimed Greenberger and Evans had financed the hit. Okay, so that's why Robert Evans was pulled in. Evans was called to give evidence at the preliminary hearing but refused to testify, citing his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. He was never directly implicated in the murder, however... But said he would only give evidence at the full trial if he was granted immunity from prosecution. All four of the accused were convicted in 1991 and uh, were sentenced to life in prison. So
0: uh, Shapiro was Evans's lawyer,
1: by oh, the way. Of, fun,
0: fun little, fun little tidbit there.
1: Uh, of O.J. Simpson, yes, same, yes. You mean John Travolta? Yes,
0: I mean John Travolta as Robert Shapiro was Robert. Evans' <laughs> <laughs> This whole time, Shapiro has been Travolta, and His we greatest just, role <laughs> he took the part in the miniseries, so you know as like a as like a false uh, oh, you know so, it's like so that, a red herring to, yeah, like right.
1: leave people away from the truth
0: yeah, oh man that's just crazy it's crazy to me that he after having after having a uh, part in the in the two best gangster movies ever made, and, the, and, then in, and then in trying to finance another gangster pick, like all of this happens, yeah. it's like it's almost like the universe was like, "Dude, like pump your brakes." Yeah, you know what I mean. And he just didn't heed any of the warnings.
1: Yeah, the irony is so thick, but the movie is still going to be made. Because Robert Evans needs it to be made, so he hires Coppola to take over. But Coppola agrees if he has final cut and complete control, and which
0: is a disaster, a bazillion dollars. Yeah, like literally a bazillion dollars. There's a there's a thing in here where it says, uh, so yeah, uh, Robert Evans said he could make it for twenty million, right? And when all is said and done, after you count all the losses and the rentals. Uh, into the budget, I think the movie ended up uh, being costing almost forty-eight. The
1: film would have to have had grossed one hundred and fifty million dollars just to break even, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which, it, like, at post-production and everything. So uh, uh, th- that's that's crazy.
0: It's insane. Okay, so so Coppola is rewriting the script while this. Uh, Raiden dude is like dead Right Uh, And uh, so Oh yeah it also says here that when when Evans was taken in to be questioned by the police uh, He claimed to have no knowledge of the murder And the lawman left the lengthy interview With autographed copies of the Chinatown Script (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which just gives you a little insight into how this guy Dealt with his Um (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, he's a hustler. And I, it, again, like the kid stays in the picture is fascinating because y- you can tell he's so charismatic. I mean, he, he's like a mob boss. Yeah, it really bit him in the ass here.
0: It's probably why he's drawn to these sorts of things. Yeah, maybe. So Coppola, uh, yeah, so the Damani brothers uh, read the script. Right. That Coppola gives them, and they're like, hell no, we're, we're pulling funding until there's a, a, a draft that we, that we like. Yeah. So, 40 rewrites later. Oh, my. Whoa. Bet- well, not quite. It was from Puzo's uh, original draft to the shooting script. Okay. was 40 rewrites. 40 rewrites. Um, most of those done by Coppola. Uh-huh. But anyway, so they finally get a shooting script that they approve, and they give the funding to, to the movie. So now it begins where they start pre-production and Evans realizes that as a director, he's in way over his head. Uh Uh-huh. So he finally decides, uh, you know, rather than try to pull in some other outside, uh, outside director, I mean, Coppola already wrote, already wrote the script, is already, you know, helping him produce it. So he's, he's the obvious choice to direct. What could go wrong? Uh, what could go wrong? Well, as um, Fiasco, A History of Hollywood's Iconic Flops tells me, apparently almost everything can go wrong. <laughs> so um, so Coppola gets called in to start directing. He right off the bat uh, demands two and a half million and a percentage of the gross, as well as, as you said earlier, the right to Final Cut. Right. Um, and from from here on out, he essentially becomes a psychopathic uh, dictatorial tyrant over the entire thing. Um, he fires the entire, almost the entire crew that <laughs> Evans had already gotten on board. Just because he doesn't like Evans? Yeah, well, I because he wanted his own people in those roles because he knew that the people Evans hired would be uh, loyal to Evans. Right. So he decided like, well, better to have my own men in these positions. So he, so he hires, yeah. So he fires like the whole camera crew, most of the production designers, um, the casting director, even like he just, he chops almost the entire uh, payroll out of the picture. But the problem then with unions is that, you owe all of these people money for firing them. Oh my god. So that that inflates the budget even more. It's a couple hundred thousand just to fire the crew. <sighs>
1: <laughs> Amazing. Yeah,
0: and then he decides that they need to shoot in New York. Um just for just because he needs to be close to, yeah, you know, cuz the, the, right. the real cotton club. Right. Was. So, yeah. So they go to New York, they rebuild the cotton club Except set. That
1: almost this entire movie is interiors is
0: interiors. That's, what's crazy to me is you could have done the, if, if they, if they had said they had done it on a studio in LA, I would not have known the difference. Yeah. Um, even the out, you, you know, even, yeah, his, are like, yeah, even, even the exteriors look like they built them to look like New York.
1: Yeah. I mean, they probably had to do a bunch of work to, uh, yeah, that's insane.
0: Yeah. Anyway, so it's this whole thing. He, he pulls in his crew, he rebuilds a bunch of sets Um, uh, now that he's in charge, he assembles the rest of the cast from his own choices. Okay. Completely disregarding, with the exception of gear. Yeah. Completely disregarding Evans's casting choices.
1: Which is how we get Nicolas Cage. Right, exactly. uh, How
0: we get, uh, Bob Hoskins. Yeah. Which, which Bob Hoskins might be the only, I think, successfully cast.
1: I mean, Mem- uh, Bob Hoskins is a gangster. It's just, like, it's perfect. I, I love Bob Hoskins. I don't know if, have you ever seen Pennies from Heaven? I've not, no. I mean, he's great in that. He's obviously great in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And those are both I, essentially period <laughs> movies from the same, the same period. Yeah, anyway, so... cast Herman Munster, too.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. The guy that... What's his name? Uh, Fred Gwynn, the guy who played Herman Munster. Who I think is an interesting choice. That's a really interesting choice. But it also says something to me. Okay, so he has all of these... uh, Coppola recasts this. The thing that I like about Coppola uh, is that he uses a lot of the same cast. Yeah. Which you develop a rapport with a director that you know works. right. You know, if it's like if 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 it's not broke, you know, uh-huh. which I think works mostly in this movie, okay. With the exception, um, obviously of Richard Gere, who he didn't cast. Yeah, I don't know, man. Even the cast is a little weird. Now it that is. I'm thinking about it, like, okay, like like Cage, like Nick Cage, is not really the person that should have played this role.
1: Um, <laughs> you don't think so? No,
0: and even though Diane Lane is a babe... Oh, she's such and a babe again. I, I think that she just doesn't... I don't think she works, really, in this part. Yeah, well, I, I, again, I mean,
1: it's hard... I think it's hard to, to pick apart the cast in part because I don't think any of these characters are fleshed out enough to... Um, to for me to really understand who would have made them succeed. You know? Like right. um like I, I think Richard Gere is miscast just because he is there's something kind of interior about his acting style and kind of understated. Um and he, yeah, he's just this like quiet, pretty boy when I think that role needs someone with a more kind of like uh a, a little bit more for like grit, for one thing. Like, Richard Gere l- does not look like uh, he's ever, sl- you know, slept in like a flea bag motel or done anything that this character s- does. Like, he doesn't come from that world. You know what I mean? He's, and Diane Lane, too, I think is like, she needs to be pretty but she also needs to be brassy in this way because she's her character is like a businesswoman or an aspiring businesswoman and her, her, the whole turn from being like an ingenue to being a uh y- you know a club owner didn't ring true to me
0: there w- there was no uh yeah there was no like evolution of her character
1: none of the characters evolve at all actually from from start to finish Nick Cage's character doesn't. He bottoms out. Um Fred Gwynn, Bob Hoskins. Lawrence Fishburne, again is in this.
0: Oh, a, another another Coppola uh, yeah. recurring recurring actor. Yeah, another rumblefish alum. Uh
1: Lynette McKee, um, who the Who did she play? She is the uh the black woman who sings. Oh, at, oh at,
0: yeah, uh, right, right. Who who Gregory Hines is trying to marry, right? right. Yeah.
1: She's great in this for, actually, what, right. for what it is. Like, I, I think she's actually one of the ones who does the most with... Gregory Hines and his brother do good work, too. Um, I was kind of sad that they got cast in a movie. Like, I, I wish that they had been in a better movie more about them, too, like,
0: right. you know. Well, and it's interesting, for being pitched as a quote-unquote black, black movie, movie. the... The the um the side plot of the singers and dancers who were who were all black right are is like really grossly undeveloped yeah but it actually was more interesting that I kept wanting to see more of their story right because it was more interesting to me than like Richard Gere and and Nick Cage's yeah.
1: story well I th- I think too like the if like the real interesting thing about the Cotton Club is not that it was run by mobsters, but that it was run by mobsters and they set it up. So you have black people performing black music for a strictly white audience. And they touch on that in this movie, but,
0: but they, but
1: they touch on it. The thing is, is I wanted Richard Gere's the main character,
0: right? And also it's sort of, I think it's kind of, I, I think it was kind of irresponsible to not, um, to not explore those race relations more in the movie. Because yeah. I think that would have given it an extra... Dim- I mean, it also could have been wasted on a movie that was as flat as this was. Right. However, it could have given it a, a, uh, another dimension that wasn't mm-hmm. there. Some
1: depth, at right. least. I mean, I, I feel like the the biggest problem with this movie is that it just tries to do too much. Um, and it so it touches on so much without... Uh without any depth,
0: like. I wish it had been like a six hour mini series right because I think then it could have really uh the scope of that w- i think would have helped it a lot more
1: yeah i, I mean it, it it feels like it feels like what boardwalk Empire would have been if uh there was kind of no blueprint for that and they had to cram it into like two hours but address every subplot right like you know, it, and so everything feels really rote. Like, R- Richard Gere and Diane Lane's whole thing, uh, their romance, proceeds the way that you, you know, you expect it would proceed, but it doesn't, I, I never believed it. I never believed that they had any kind of chemistry. Like, just the fact that the gangster Dutch, I, I forget who plays him, but takes a shine to Richard gear and and makes him his, his beard basically to have, uh, to hang out with Diane Lane is insane. Like you're, you're this greasy, gross old gangster, and you're going to hire this beautiful young cornet playing, uh, gigolo type to like just platonically hang out and like chauffeur your girlfriend around
0: and then, and then get mad at him when you realize that they're like falling in love. Yeah. It's like, what do you expect,
1: man? Come on, dude. I mean that whole thing, like, like you said, like I wish that wasn't in the movie and I wish it was just about the entertainers, but it didn't have anything really to say about, about race or about like, you know, I, I thought there was, so Lynette McKee, there's this interesting part where she and Gregory Hines are going to get a hotel room, but it comes up that she passes for white, you know, and, and that was an interesting, like, that was a moment that I wrote down of like, Oh, like, you know, this is what this movie could be about. right
0: And like, where is this going? And then it was just a little cursory scene of the, uh, of the hotel, you know, concierge right. being like, I like not renting them. Cause he thought that it was a black man with a white woman.
1: Right. And, and then she's like, no, I'm black. He's right. like, Oh, okay. he's like, <laughs> here, <laughs> yeah. take, take the shitty room.
0: <laughs> right. And then that was it. And then <laughs> yeah. that was just the end of it. I was like, really? Like yeah. that, that's it's not going anywhere else with that. But that's what I meant when I said it earlier, I wanted the race relations explored. More. Yeah. It was just little things like that. Um, And then also the whole part with like Lawrence Fishburne and the black gangsters, uh, you know, they, there was like a little scene where it was like, yeah, these, these, uh, these Irish, the Irish mob thinks that they can run the city, but, you know, but like, we're going to, we're going (laughs) to rise up and show them like who really runs it. And then like, then they shoot them all Yeah. and then, that's the end of it. it. Like there's no, there's no self righteous, like taking back of anything. It's just like they roll in with machine guns and blow everyone away, which it could have been just another white gang doing that. Right. But they didn't, I don't know. So
1: yeah, it's all these threads that um, are unsatisfying by themselves and add up to just a really long movie. And there's nothing more grating to me than a movie really trying to like squeeze some emotion and pathos at the end out of something that it just hasn't earned. And, uh, at
0: all, it didn't earn anything.
1: Really. And, and, you know, Coppola's is good at spectacle. And, uh, so, you know, we get some good, some good spectacle at the, especially near the end that is like man's inhumanity on man, you know, like it, it right. seems like it's reaching for this, this grand thing, but you're just like, who gives a shit? You know, I, I think what's interesting. We didn't mention this, but what, what originally got sold to Robert Evans wasn't it. The source material wasn't a novel. It's a photo book. It's
0: like a coffee table book.
1: Yeah. Like a coffee table book of photos from the cotton club. And I think that shows in the movie, it might as well be recreations. It's just,
0: it's just montages, really, yeah. And the montages, tableaus, and montages is right. really all it is. And
1: then there's these cliches, kind of like fed throughout it, like soy and a burger, just kind of like fattening it up. And the the montages and and uh, tableaus and whatever, th- those are the best parts. Like there's a sequence where Lynette McKee sings "Ill Wind," um, yes, and yes. during the the 1929 stock crash, and that is. I really love that sequence. Me too. Me too. Like the, the song is perfect for it. The way it's shot is it, this very, like it feels very eighties, like a very eighties kind of like, it looks like a Mac- Michael Jackson video or something. Right. But, and then you have these like, you know, uh, overlays of the spinning rou- roulette wheels or whatever, but it's beautiful. It, it they're, they're really on the nose but they're really fulfilling, I, remember, I think in that sequence too, there's a scene of Diane Lane filling in a crossword, and she writes the word "gangster <laughs> and, one of, and it's just so like the rest of the movie is just as on the nose as that it just takes two plus hours to do it
0: The thing is the thing I think I have a problem with is that Coppola was not having enough fun with the movie, yeah because. I think that if he had just tried, I'm not saying it needed to be a comedy, but I think that all the all the funny parts of it were unintentionally funny. Yeah, and I think that he ha- if if he had just like injected it every once in a while with some levity, and really made the jazz uh, the the scenes in the club and the musical numbers. Just more fun. Fun. They're not fun at all. They're not fun at all, and they should be. Like he should have imparted some of the feeling of being in the Cotton Club and seeing Duke Ellington or Cab Calloway at their prime. And there is that Cab Calloway sequence. And and, right, there's a really, really good sequence where some—I don't know what actor, but there's there's someone portraying Cab Calloway, and there's you know they cut away periodically from the stage Mm -hmm. where he's performing to. The more intimate, uh, like bar and table scenes, where you know characters are discussing whatever they're yeah. discussing. There's dialogue going on, but but they don't show enough of the musical performance right. and too much of the talking heads and the dialogue. And I just want, I just kind of wanted once for there to just be like an unabashed uh, musical, musical sequence, sequence that yeah. just was fun to watch and was really flashy. And, you know, uh, made you realize, like, oh, like, this is why the Cotton Club was exciting. Yeah. And there was really none, there was none of that at all.
1: No, there's not. Every scene like that, I think it it feels really uh, weighted down by the narrative significance that it has to have. Like, it's, uh, they're all, it's all doubling as, uh, or tripling as, like, you know, pushing all these elements of the story forward. So we have to keep cutting away. And it's not, the focus is never on the joy of the music or performance or anything. It's just like, it's on, oh, gangsters, oh, like, which is annoying. Did, yeah. Like the worst part of that Cab Calloway sequence is when Richard Gere comes in and Cab Calloways like, Hey, it's, it's, uh, whatever his name is. Uh, what's his fucking name? Dixie, Dixie yeah, Dwyer, Dix- like Dixie
0: Dwyer. And- I like how we don't even remember what the main <laughs> character's name is. And Richard Gere's like, <laughs> and, then, and then Charlie Chaplin and James Cagney come oh in. God. Like, it was so cheesy. It was like, yeah. really? And you know, yeah, you are supposed to be like, Oh, like this was a club where all the celebrities yeah. hung out, but you don't like, understand why it was a cool place to hang out right coppola directed the entire movie from a like airstream trailer (laughs) parked outside of the sets he called it the silverfish and it he had it driven out from california to new york and uh so the silverfish contained a customized kitchen as well as an assortment of newest high-tech video equipment uh, he initially wanted to film uh, the movie using uh, video because he thought that that was like the future and then it was obviously many other factors went into him realizing you can't really film like a big budget, high quality film on video. But this, but this, this goes back to the idea that I was, uh, oh, uh, let, let me just say real quick though, all of the dailies mm-hmm. were dubbed to videotape. So that they could take them back to their respective hotel rooms or apartments and watch them from the comfort of their own homes after the shooting day was done.
1: Did that cost a lot of money? I'm
0: sure it cost a lot of money. Uh, But it was just Coppola wanting to... Uh, prove that the future of uh, (laughs) filmmaking was was in, like, video, Uh, which goes back to this idea you were talking about how everything looks vaguely like a Michael Jackson music video. I think Coppola really wanted to capture the, you know, the idea of, okay, the 80s are here, music videos are a thing, and they are really, he thought, the vanguard, uh, and that they were, you know, what was going to keep people interested in film was this it was sort of marriage of music videos and traditional filmmaking. Uh, it backfired yeah. obviously I think just mainly because he was either too old or he didn't understand exactly how to integrate it. Right. Um, but yeah, the silverfish was outfitted with like a full, uh, video, um, monitoring system. So he watched all of the takes and directed, from the trailer. From the trailer. He wasn't even on set.
1: We're, we're going to get to Nick Cage eventually, but... Um, Are we? Yeah, I
0: think we should. He, I feel like he's only... like I feel like Nick Cage is such a uh, tertiary uh, part <laughs> of the, like, the discussion of this film. There's so much else going on. I
1: know. We'll, we'll get there. I, I have a couple things to say about, uh, about him, where he's at in this. But uh, he was very upset during this... This sequence uh, of events, in part, because it was supposed to be a three-week shoot for him, and uh, it turned into like six months. And one of the reasons, or that I guess the reason that that happened, is because Francis Ford Coppola wanted he wanted to do things uh, in an improvis- improvisatory manner, so he would have. He would have a bunch of characters, a bunch of actors, including Nick Cage, be on set in makeup and costume for scenes that they weren't in just in case he decided to have them walk on or that someone got inspired to, you know. So so money is just getting thrown uh, thrown at so many actors and, and makeup people and stuff for, for like – and Nick Cage is pissed off because he wants to – To be making movies, but he can't. He has to turn down a bunch of projects uh, to base to play a very small role. Sounds it sounds like he was at kind of his most irritating as a human being at during this point, and was uh, was trying. He was also trying to create sort of a mystique around himself. Um, He's uh, a big fan of James Dean and uh, wanted to be seen as this like brooding bad boy. Um, and also wanted to be a method actor. So um, here's a reading, again, from the unauthorized biography of Nicolas Cage, the man behind Captain Corelli. I was very frustrated on Cotton Club, he said. I was slated to work for three weeks. I was there for six months in costume and makeup on set in case Francis got an idea that would involve my character. Meanwhile, I'm getting offers for starring roles in other movies, and I can't do them. So all my behavior, all my acting out came from frustration. I was young. I couldn't really be a madman for the six months I was filming because I'd be in jail by now. I tried it for the first three weeks. I tried to instill some horror in people. But again, that was during the time when I was still experimenting with those ideas. I was behaving like a guy who listened to early Who music and wanted to be a rebel, a punk rocker, an outlaw of some sort. And I didn't really know how to act. I don't need to do that now because I went through that period. It still comes back to bite me sometimes. Because I started acting at 17, I had an adolescent energy that was geared toward punk rock or that rebellious rock and roll image. I had heard tales about idols and icons I admired and brought into the lore. I'm 19 or something, and I wanted to get stories out of, out there about me. I was playing the most feared gangster in Harlem. I wanted to live the part. It was more of a self-created thing than an outpouring of tension. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay, on one occasion, he took his bizarre behavior public, much to the amazement of passersby. Walking through New York, he came across a man selling remote-controlled model cars on the street. He started chasing them and stomping on them, almost causing a riot because the terrified onlookers thought he was psychotic. Once he calmed down, he apologized and paid for the damage he caused. Looking back on his image as an off-kilter character drawn to weird roles and bizarre behavior in 1990, he told the English newspaper The People, Uh, My trouble was that I used to submerge myself in a role. It was exhausting. I remember when I was with Richard Gere on the Cotton Club, he told me, if you keep on acting like this, you'll only have three more films left in you. I was so gung-ho, I was ripping apart my trailer, trashing my hotel room, walking on set and calling everyone the N-word so they would all hate me. It was all aimed at getting a good performance, but now I think that manners and being polite are important. It's a waste of energy on set.
0: So he so he basically just went crazy,
1: yeah, he just acted out like uh he was like i'm I'm a psycho in this movie, so I'm just going to be a psycho. There's one other part I underlined just <laughs> this has nothing to do with anything, but I like it. Eventually, five years after Evans optioned the book, the film opened in December 1984. Nick's principal recollection of the premiere was playing a joke on singer-songwriter Carly Simon, who wrote You're So Vain. He said, I took a program, rolled it up, put it to her ear, and whispered, Cloud's in my coffee. She whipped her head around, snarled, and, looked, and I looked at my friend like he did it. <laughs> so he's just fucking with... He's, he's just Carly Simon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, that's and that's a really endearing story to me. Yeah, it is. Um, um, but okay, so you think he he doesn't really succeed in this role in this movie? And I I think I'd agree with you. I mean, even though it, all that's required of him is really to like freak out. Um,
0: well, the thing is, is that I don't even think it's required of him to freak out. I yeah. think he just freaked. Okay, so the one thing I will say about this is the the Nicholas Cage that we all know and love. This is in this film is the first time that he rears his head. You think so? In the scene where after he's hiding out after he uh-huh. kills the 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 child, Sofia Coppola. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, Sofia Coppola kills the the poor little girl that gets yeah. accidentally gunned down in the drive by. Right. Uh, but after after he kills her and he's hiding out, and uh, Richard Gere comes to visit him. You know, there's that scene where he's. Like in the middle of shaving, yeah, which you're hiding out from from not only the police <laughs> but also like everyone else in the gang. You'd think that you would maybe like, why are you shaving? Yeah, grow your beard out. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so so Richard Gear comes in, and the rest of the scene is acted with a towel around his neck yeah. and shaving cream on his face. Right, you know where he where he freaks out and he like and he and he yells uh, in a really erratic way. Yeah, and then yeah. like flips the shaving pan and right. like screams. So that I think is, you know, what we think of Nicolas Cage as but, yeah. like freaking a out. Nicolas Cage freak. Right. Out. Like yeah. that is the first time that I've seen it happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. So
0: there's that, there's that. milestone, I guess.
1: Uh, so I think that said about Nicholas Cage, we can go back to the movie. Um, cause it's kind of, kind of tangential this time. Um, because there are a couple more things I wanted to say about why I don't think this movie worked. Um, sometime soon, we're going to get to a movie where we're talking about all the ways that it did work again. <laughs> is um, it? Is it the next movie? Is it Birdie? Is I'm, it not birdie? Sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. Is it Birdie? I'm not sure, Well, the, another thing that really bothered me is the, the color palette in this movie. Is,
0: yeah, you're right, actually. And you know what? I hadn't even thought of that, but now that you mention it, it actually was like kind of gross.
1: Yeah. It's, it's mostly earth tones. And I, I mean, I guess they were like trying to suggest old photos, but it's really unpleasant. It's like lots of grays and browns and whites and beiges and stuff. And it's just like, I don't know. Again, like where's the fun? Like where's the like flash? Like, I'd like to see Baz Luhrmann do a movie about the Cotton Club and see... Well, you I, don't, know, I don't know if I want to see Baz Luhrmann do
0: any movie, but <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he could definitely make this uh, something way more exciting to watch. Right. I mean, it's
1: like Coppola was focused on beams of light coming through the skylights and dust coming up as they're just stomping on the floor and stuff like that. You know, things that are um, kind of poetic, but it, it just it looks ugly and it's not... It it, it doesn't work.
0: Yeah, it it really doesn't. I think he just tries to be too, like, artsy. And, you know, I mean, I understand film is primarily a visual medium, so you want to make the movie look interesting. But when you only try to make the movie look interesting... And then you don't even succeed at that. Yeah, It's like, what are you left with? Or the wrong kind of interesting, Right. Because I think that they're like, it's like we were saying before with the musical numbers and uh, you know, like the jazz age was a, like a time period that you could find so much to do with and make it flashy and fun and uh-huh. bright and fast paced.
1: Well, and what's perverse is he, he like goes for it in certain areas like the editing he'll he'll go from scene to scene with these like elaborate like s- like screen wipes or like you know it, it's very uh, of the era like corny and or the way it ends with uh Richard Gere and Diane Lane on the train with this fucking like neon lights that say 20th century limited as in like a big heart or some shit as they're going off into the distance, like another movie that ends with a train leaving. It's so corny and easy and like, you know, it should be fun or ideally I think it should be this kind of like flashy superficial thing that we know is laid on top of, Uh, something darker and and meaner, which is, like, mentioning again, Pennies from Heaven, like, that's the whole... I mean, Pennies from Heaven is a perfect example of it's shot on video, so it looks gross, but it it mixes realism and, like, really just, like, raw humanity with these, like, uh, really fun musical sequences and and it takes a lot more time to do it because it's a miniseries, so, like... Um, I I guess having seen that and having seen, again, like Boardwalk Empire or whatever, like kind of revisionist histories of of the 20s, it's so frustrating that an artist of Coppola's uh, ability, that this is what he turned in for that amount of money.
0: I know, because he, he wrote this, you know, it's not even like he was giving subpar material because he wrote the script. Right. Yeah. So he had the ability to make this. Whatever he wanted. Whatever he wanted. And honestly, when I read the description of it and I read them talking about it in Easy Riders mm-hmm. before I saw it, I was I was excited to see it. Yeah. Because I was like this, you know, just because a movie flops doesn't mean it's a bad movie.
1: I'm one, we, we just watched Rumblefish. With, which
0: also didn't make any money at the
1: box office. And yet, you know, is, I, I think, an unsung classic. And Cotton Club sounds on paper like it should be, you know, a movie that history's been really unkind to unfairly. But it's just, it's just a whole lot of nothing. The nice thing is the, the next time we see Coppola uh, for this series, he's going to be making Peggy Sue Got Married, which is one of my favorite coppola films i've not i have not seen that one um it is uh in terms of a period movie that is ridiculously fun you know it, that's good exceeds it, That's good. very fun
0: i want to see coppola have fun i don't think yeah. i've actually ever seen i mean rumblefish had some fun moments yeah but, but i don't so think pretty. i've actually seen a coppola film that is a fun movie mm-hmm and so, I'm I'm excited for it, that. It exists. Yeah, that's good.
1: But next time, we're going to be talking about Birdie, which... Can I,
0: can I put one more, yeah, like, really depressing button on this Cotton Club thing? Please. So, Evans, at a certain point, uh, got stonewalled by Coppola and just stopped coming to set. Yeah. And then, eventually, uh, had his contract renegotiated so that he just got a flat sum to basically walk away from it yeah. before it was done. Yeah, so this baby that he like brought up from nothing uh and raised all the money for you know and like brought everyone together basically he was just kicked out of it and uh the Manhattan townhouse that he was staying in the lease expired he was too poor to get another one so he had to move in with friends and the only way that he saw the movie was when it was finally released he had he Bought. He wasn't even invited to the premiere or any like rough cut screenings. Oh my god! He bought a ticket to go see it in the theater when it was finally released. Oh, what a drag! I know. Um, and he was righteously infuriated by what he eventually saw on the screen. Wow. Uh. Anyway, but that's just sad, you know. Oh yeah, and apparently there was like a, a two. There was two whole musical sequences that were just cut out of the final cut entirely. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what those were. Maybe they were too fun.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> too flashy. Yeah, well, next time we're going to watch Birdie, which is a really weird movie that um, will invite a lot of discussion.
0: Matthew Modine thinks he's a bird?
1: Yes, <laughs> basically. And uh, Nick Cage is his best friend. Um, another period movie, too, which that, those keep the 80s. I guess we're a good time for that.
0: Which is funny because the eighties you would think were was a kick-ass decade to live in judging from what I've
1: judging from the, right. the period movies that we've seen.
0: Um, but it's just funny that they only made movies about other periods yeah, in the eighties.
1: <laughs> I'm excited. I, you know, I've been talking about the, these books that I'm reading alongside, uh, doing this podcast. And, uh, well, The unauthorized biography of Nicolas Cage, the man behind Captain Corelli, is the most informative and thorough. Douglas Thompson's biography, Uncaged, has the most attitude. Uh, And there's a chapter I'm waiting to read called The Gang about Nick Cage and all of his uh, Brat Pack friends. And I, I was really sad last time when I realized that I forgot to bring up the Uncaged chapter on Racing with the Moon which, which is entitled Pen Friend, as in P-E-N-N, Sean Penn, which, for one thing, that is just really funny to say. And moreover, not pen pal.
0: to celebrate.